Well, welcome to the Guardians of the Flame podcast. Uh, it's really good to have Jonathan Martin with us uh, this morning. We're sitting in a, a nice little prayer room here in Onkuin, right on the Irish border. Um, and for those of you who don't know, a lot of you listening probably have heard of Jonathan Martin, but if you don't know, uh, Jonathan Martin has been a uh, pastor. He preaches regularly all over the world and all over America. He's written two books. Uh, his first one was Prototype, and his second one was uh, How to Survive a Shipwreck. Um, and so it's really good to have you here, Jonathan. Uh, great to have you on the podcast. It's such an honor to be here. I'm having an amazing time. This is just an enchanted place, and I've loved everything we've been doing. You guys have been just incredibly gracious, the hospitality, and and you're just such a great hang. So how about your listeners know that? Like, like you should have some kind of a contest where people could, you know, win an opportunity just to hang out with you for an hour <laughs> or two. I want to put this forward because, like, you're you're one of my favorite people to hang out with. This has been brilliant. Ah, uh, cool. Um, well, last night we did an event. It was the second event we did, we've done called Borderlands. Um, the first one was last month with Jared McKenna. And we do it in a little pub in Belfast. And we have some music, we have some stories. And then uh, last night you spoke. One of the stories, yesterday was the 11th of November, uh, which is in this part of the world. It's kind of Remembrance Sunday. I don't know if it is in America. Um, but And so it's a day where... Well, the, the negative side is we can tend to glorify war and kind of almost bow at the, at, the, at the foot of war memorials instead of what I think you've recently tweeted, instead of bowing at the foot of the cross, you know. Um, uh, of course, I think remembering war probably is a very helpful thing to do, um, but usually we only remember the wars that we want to remember. And so last night... I felt it was significant to have the story of a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. And um, so she spoke and shared her briefly her story, um, uh, which I think was was important to do. And then after that, it was like a time for you to get up and, and kind of share your heart, which obviously was from a different angle. But it, it was that same kind of sense you were you were sharing from your heart and um, uh, you were sharing something deep. And the, the kind of the story that you touched on towards the end was the road to Emmaus, which I know has been an important kind of story in your own kind of journey. What, was, what were you kind of getting at there, Jonathan? What was that about? Well, the, um, the Emmaus Road story has taken on a whole new kind of significance for me in the last couple of years. Um, and I remember I reread that text before Easter, and it just the detail that really just pushed me into a different place is that I just never thought about the fact that the two disciples there are walking away from Jerusalem and how much meaning I feel like is bound up in leaving Jerusalem. This is where the temple is, the holy place, the this, this sacred space. The fact that, that now Jerusalem is also the place where they've seen Jesus of Nazareth killed. So the what once was a sacred and a safe place consecrated place now feels like a desecrated place it just hit me differently because I feel like there are so many people in my life right now for whom sacred spaces now feel like desecrated spaces mm. where they don't feel like they've got a place and um, how surely for them since they believed that Jesus was the one who was coming to redeem Israel as they will say in a very particular way going to kind of like uh, vindicate them over against the Romans and all that just how much disillusionment really is bound up mm. in this. That surely, that for them walking away from Jerusalem in that moment, surely has to be a way of walking away from God. Mm. And yet, Jesus comes and walks alongside them and they don't recognize him. So I just, 
the thing that just came to me, and I, this still feels like just a gift of the Holy Spirit, and just something I'm just sitting with a lot. It sounds, I don't, I'm not trying to turn it into like a catchphrase or something, but it just, these words just continue to haunt and inspire me that God walks with them, that God walks with us, even on the walk away from God, even on the road away from God, God will walk with you. <laughs> That's the kind of God that we have in Jesus. And I think that especially in the way that, and where that connects for me personally is that, um, I love the church and very much a product of the church, but I also certainly feel like this last season of my life has involved a great deal of deconstruction. And, you know, I, I remember when I had the, what was really an epiphany for me that was sort of like, I was still going to be able to know God, but I wasn't going to be able to know God as I've known him before. And the only way I could know him is the way he's able to be known now, which is going to be different. And so I feel like I've kind of had my own experience of sort of encountering Jesus on the road away from a, a certain kind of institutional construct mm. of church that was real kind of tightly, you know, bound together for me at one point. Yeah. So like, I mean, I, I think for you and for me, like we're similar age. If you, if you went back in time 20 years, uh, we would be in a bit of a different place than we are sure. now. But I think what I like about what you talk about, and I've, I think I heard it for those of you who don't know, Jonathan has a podcast called son of a preacher man. And you did an interview with a, a guy I've never met. I've exchanged chats with on Twitter, Carlos Rodriguez, who's yeah. a Puerto Rican guy. And I, th- I thought it was a really interesting podcast. But if I can remember it, you were both really essentially talking about not taking any great kind of, f- f- not having any major backslides. You were just following a trajectory. What I remember the phrase, a trajectory of love. You know, this kind of, you've just kept going. In the, in the 90s, you were told, God is a God of love. He loves old people. He loves you like a parent, like a father. And you've kind of just followed that trajectory. And so where you are today actually isn't a major step, a departure from that. Actually, you're, you're still being quite faithful to that trajectory. Is, yeah, what, um, what do you want to say, <laughs> say well, about that? Well, that for me feels like a really important point because I think especially where I find myself deviating in some of the particulars uh, of, of how I think about a life of faith than I did when I was younger, I can see and understand, because I get that from time to time, not all the time, but I definitely hear from people who feel like, man, you've really gone a different direction. They don't know what to do with it. Oh, no, I haven't gone a different direction. It's like the central revelation of my life has been that God is love, that God, um, you know, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or in Hebrew, is the exact representation of who God is. Like, they've if Jesus is the full expression of who God is and what God looks like, if the definitive picture of God is Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. If you come to really believe that, um, those implications have to be worked out in every area of your life. And that, that, does, that for me has been the trajectory. Once you're really convinced that God looks like self-sacrificial love, that's got to now... Um, kind of got to be kneaded into every area of your life, right? That's got to like, that's, that's just so, so I've, in that regard, I feel like there's only been like one turn and that's towards uh, fully coming to believe that, uh, that God is love. So yeah, then that starts to change some of the particulars. And I think where it was an interesting conversation with Carlos, and I'm having a lot of conversations like that in this point in my life, is that we're people who both kind of came out of this, you know, very much raised in this Pentecostal charismatic environment where we were taught how to listen to the Holy Spirit. And I think it's an especially interesting and at times frustrating place to be when you have a, a people, a church, a community that teaches you how to listen to the Holy Spirit. And then precisely because they taught you how to listen to the Holy Spirit, 
you have to move on from where they are and some things. And then mm. it, it looks like unfaithfulness. Mm. And what are you doing? Like, hey, I want to say very like and gently and even with a laugh, like y'all taught me how to listen to the Holy Spirit. You're responsible for mm. this. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they did it too. You know, I think all the anybody who's ever been on a journey with the Spirit has known what it's like to have to follow the Spirit in ways that entail a certain amount of rejection, discomfort, change, growth, like whatever. So I think, and that's where like the, the conversation with Carlos and it feels like a conversation me and him have been having over a couple of years now has been especially important. We very much see ourselves as faithfully trying to steward the legacy that was given to us because that, that whole reality of listening to the Holy Spirit is still at the center. It's just when you do believe that though, that center is one that's uh, dynamic and not static. It's interactive. It's about following the God of the Exodus. So it does involve movement and change. Mm. And it seems like we're in a, a just a remarkable period of time now where things are changing really quickly. And I, I actually don't feel like it's you and me that are changing or people like us in a sense. I do feel like we're following the trajectory of love that we were always on. Like I I grew up, one of my heroes in the organization I worked with was a guy called Floyd McClung. He's still alive, but yes, is in a I've coma right now. Yeah, he's a great Beautiful guy. Beautiful man. I mean, he moved to, we went to Afghanistan in the 60s and moved to the Netherlands in the 70s and started working in the red light district in Amsterdam, you know, and really loving those that were outside the church, were on the margins. And um, and that was kind of what I kind of came into, Youth of the Mission, where I kind of work. For me, this was an organization about loving those on the fringes, the margins, going anywhere for the sake of love, for the sake of people. Uh, and yet what I see in my own organization, I see infecting parts of the church throughout the USA, but also in the United Kingdom with Brexit, a growing fear of immigration, is like suddenly these people that were like real heroes of ours are becoming like... Um, and this is maybe where it ties into that, this documentary that I'm making and the general theme of Christian nationalism. It seems like some people, particularly of an older generation, have almost come into, they have been, who has bewitched you, you know? Like, who has cut in on you and brought in this teaching that it's okay to kind of um, leave Europe and because of immigration and fears of uh, refugees. You know, when, when was fear of refugees ever a kingdom principle to live by, you know? Um, so, and, and I know you're dealing with that. Obviously, you're ground zero, in a sense, living sure. in the USA. Like, do you want to speak into that whole kind of Christian nationalism, the, the idol of folk religion, of this kind of... Yes. Well, it's, a, it's, deeply, it's deeply disappointing... Um, and I thought as you said that, I was so, I loved it when you brought up that Galatians verse, because I've literally used those exact words to talk about this reality that who has bewitched you, that Paul says to Galatians. Because, you know, and it, I think something that hit me in a tender place, even as you posed the question that way, is that a lot of the folks who have drifted that way really have been heroes of mine. And um, it's not now like I'm this very, I, I am angry sometimes, but I'm not, I don't feel like generally I'm just this angry person who's who's railing. There's a lot there's a lot of hurt there. It's real pain to see your heroes. Not not the worst kind of pain. I'm not being like a victim or martyr about it. It's just like I mean, it's 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 just it's just hard to watch because I think that especially as any of us get older and um we're a little more vulnerable to the elements, you know. Uh, you start thinking about your own mortality and uh stuff that you're you don't feel as inv as invincible and things that you're afraid of feel closer death doesn't seem like as distant it makes sense to me 
that especially when you've got a whole machine out there that like a cottage industry that is built entirely off of playing to people's fears, how it's easy to get caught up in that. And I mean, like in America, when people are, as a lot of folks do, you know, if if people watch one of our more explicitly uh, partisan news things, and just I'm going to make a foot, just this is a footnote here. I've known folks to work for Fox News in D.C. who are not yeah. even like they're not liberals necessarily or whatever, but they've told me outright. The idea is you come in first thing in the morning and the question is, what is mainstream media saying today? We're going to say the opposite of that. I mean, it truly is not news. That's not the it's not news, <laughs> but like uh, people who are caught up in some of those mediums, you know, statistically, a lot of them end up, you know, watching it five or six hours a day. If you already are bent in a certain way, then you can get trapped inside the algorithm on Facebook where you're reading the same kind of articles and seeing the same kind of videos from the same kind of voices over and over. So what I've seen consistently is, you know, what happens is those, quote, news organizations they disciple people and you know who cares if you hear a 30-minute sermon that's different if you've got five or six hours a day where between Facebook and Fox News you're getting one message what I'm gonna tell you about Jesus on Sunday that's not necessarily gonna you know be the most determinative thing in your life so so yes all to, to come full circle just to say it is a very strange and difficult time and it's a it's it's a sharply generational divide which encourages me and discourages me because like I th I'm glad that younger people aren't as swept up in it. I hope though any of them will darken doors mm -hmm. of the church because I think we have not begun to calculate what kind of damage we're doing for generations to come but I think being on the wrong side of history in some of these things and um, you know I am just charismatic enough per some of the conversations we've had this far to where it does feel to me like a profound spiritual darkness. You know it's not just about bad information that there is more I mean, I, I've, the way I've been saying it here lately is that America is in need of nothing less than exorcism from, you know, 450 years of, uh, of white supremacy. I mean, these are deeply embedded forces. And it, it, I think part of what happened on the political right in America is that people tried to play with white nationalism mm. like it's a fire, like they wanted just enough fire to keep us warm. Mm. Like we're going to toy with some of these mm. expressions and emotions and some of this volatile language just enough to get people afraid and get them to vote in the way we want them to work. Trouble is, that white nationalism is is a wildfire. You can't control it. And you don't just get to channel it and then like rein it back in. It's like you've opened Pandora's box. Exactly. And, and that's what it feels like, is that all these things have been opened up right now in a way that feels really destructive. And so it's an interesting time, you know, because I think like, I don't want to be dramatic. I know everybody thinks probably that their moment in history is uniquely important in some way, but I definitely feel like in particular, the public witness of the church is at stake in this conversation. And what is white supremacy? What do you mean by that? Or how do you see that in the narrative in America or the culture? You're like, I've heard you kind of almost imply quite rightly, I think that it's, it's fundamental. It's part of the fabric of American society. Like, how does that play out? Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because I feel like I, am, I am saying that a lot these days and there I do get serious pushback about it and their folks are so bothered. But, you know, it, the very fact that people are bothered, I, I think that's what makes whiteness as, a, as kind of an idea so problematic is that there, there's, there's implicitly this notion that to be white is to be culture free. Mm. We are without culture. 
we as white people. Anybody who's not white, they they have a culture. They bring in a culture. African people have a culture. Latin American people have a culture. Uh, Asian people have a culture. So when you see like every other expression of like common life as here are people who have who bring their own culture, but you understand whiteness as being bland, vanilla, culture free. That's precisely what makes, I think, white supremacy so insidious is that, you know, the ground floor idea is that we have this Plies objectivity. That you're the normal. Yeah, that's you're right. That you're the normal. Everyone else is slightly either exotic and, and fancy and right. let's look at them like you would in a zoo or they're slightly deviant and need that's to be right. civilized. And we fail then to see that we're enculturated. Mm. We fail to see that like our own history has shaped us in any particular way. Hence, like in America, like how much, of course, understandably, we whitewash the stories of, you know, the the people that we slaughtered to get the land to begin with. You know, like it's a it's a bloody and and brutal history. But the narrative is always going to be, you know, we, the white people came in on a white horse to save the day. And everybody's better off because of our you know, systems and structures and everybody's wealthier and wiser and, you know, all, you know, all these kinds of things. But yeah, it's, uh, it's uniquely challenging because like the very, the very claim that I want to make most fundamentally about white supremacy is that if you're a white person in America, you have a culture and you're enculturated. So let's like at least think critically about what that culture is, what assumptions are implicit in it, you know, but that right now to people sounds like, and th I hate this too, that sounds like a liberal claim. That sounds like something leftists would say. Like, no, no, that's not, that's not, not liberal or left. It's simply about realizing that, you know, where you grow up, how you grow up, the people you come from has its own particular set of, uh, you know, there, there's promise and peril to it. It's not all bad. Being white isn't necessarily bad, yeah, yeah. but the naive, uncritical assumptions of whiteness where you're not able to look at your own stuff is very dangerous, I think. So, yeah, when we were talking to Jared McKenna last week, um, you know, obviously McKenna, he's, his, his, uh, grandfather, his father is from Belfast, you know. Um, and, uh, and so for Jared being here, it was quite interesting. Like he was, you know, he's really becoming in touch with his, the Irish part of him, you know. And he was talking about the very true fact that 100 years ago, the Irish people weren't white, you know. Yeah. It was like no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, you know. Mm. Um, you know, in America, the common, you know, sign on shop windows was no Irish need apply, you know. It was like Irish, we were the others. But 100 years later, Irish are now whites, you know. Jared is now a white person, you know. And, um, and yeah, and so that kind of myth of whiteness, I think, is uh, for those wanting to kind of get into understanding the nuances of, of our unequal societies in the West, that's something we need to get into, you know. Um, in, in Ireland here, we have a growing number, growing ethnic diversity, but I mean, when I was growing up, certainly in the north of Ireland here, uh, everyone were kind of was kind of white, you know. You're either a Protestant or a Catholic, and those divisions were big enough, you know. Um, so uh, that's why it's interesting to kind of look at the American um, a picture a little bit and and kind of see that. One of the things Jared talked about was um, I thought it was you know just very moving was he talked about how when the white people came in on the boats when when you know convicts and settlers from england came to australia uh, i don't know a couple hundred years ago they were coming to a, a country where the indigenous population 
and very much looked like the second chapter of Acts. You know, they shared everything in common. They preferred each other. There wasn't top-down hierarchy. There was, you know, a strong sense of community. And people on boats came from 12,000 miles away believing that they had manifest destiny to come and conquer the land and that they had God all figured out and how wrong they were. And and I suppose what you were saying then is this is not some kind of liberal idea. Um, this is just knowing history, you yeah, know, and, right. and as Christians today, this is just knowing good history and good, you know, the Aboriginal people of Australia actually embodied a lot 200 years ago of what it, what the second chapter of Acts should be like. What People in ships from England should have gone there to discover God, you know. Instead, they came to kind of suppress... Which is which is very sad, and I guess in in North America you have the same story, you know, um, with First Nations and yes. kind of a spirit of manifest destiny, and yeah, which is a little bit depressing. <laughs> it's very depressing, and you know, even when you talk about manifest destiny, like the thing I'm just that's just ringing in my ears is that it's so easy for us to talk about ideas and the abstract, and but yet these ideas really matter. Ideas matter. Words matter, and that's it's precisely why I feel like right now. I'm feeling more more drawn to speaking about things that I don't necessarily want to speak about. I'm not looking to like provoke conflict. That's not who I am. But it's just I just feel like we're we've so carelessly in America, white people in America and white evangelicals in particular, maybe um, we we just so carelessly use the, the this language and use these kind of ideas with no sense of consequence whatsoever for the weight of those words, how they've played out historically, what they'll what they'll mean for you know, generations that are coming after us. I just think that just those, those phrases are so loaded and they're, um, they're, there's real, there's real meaning. So that's where I kind of feel like right now, uh, you know, and I, I, cause I've had people say like, well, you know, even using the language of white supremacy is unduly polarizing. The people get defensive about it. Yeah. I mean, I hear that and I do want to unpack what it means and mm. not just like throw mm. words around, but that's the thing. Like, I guess I feel like right now is a time where like, the words are worth contending for, and the ideas like it's it's worth having mm. a, a a real robust row in the public square mm. because who wins in this war of ideas? Like, I mean, it has consequences. And I suppose one of the things that like Trump has done, and like the Charlottesville, like, you were there, were you? Is that right? Did we? Oh I, no, you weren't there. I wasn't there, yeah. but I flew into D.C. that night, a couple and two hours away. Uh, I mean, like with, uh, I mean, I literally came in like just after it. Yeah. So I suppose what it's done in a way, by I never really remember. Say, I'm not from America, so, but I never really remember hearing white supremacy as a word used to describe um, white Christian America sure. ten years ago. Yeah. But actually, now we are talking about it, not because it's a new thing, but because perhaps. You know, in a way, the ideology of Trump and, and nationalism and America first and make America great again has actually, un and the support that many have given him, certainly 70 to 80 percent of the, those who voted, Christians, white Christians, voted for that. It's what it's done is it's brought back the, drawn the curtains and, and it's exposed what was probably there all along. That's and right. Actually, there's something quite prophetic about naming it. Um, yes. To say white supremacy that makes people uncomfortable and angry. Yes. But it's actually, this is exactly what it is. Totally. You know? and, it, and hey, it makes me kind of uncomfortable. I was just at, uh, doing a conference called Evolving Faith. And one of the things I loved about it was that it's one of the mo most diverse, truly lineups I've ever been a part of. Like most of the speakers were 
you know, female, not male, and uh, all kind of cultures represented. And I had moments in those talks of like real squirming, real squirming, because I feel like I was being forced to wrestle with my own complicity and things that, you know, I'm like, but I, but I'm somebody who's speaking out about this. I, I, if, I honestly, to use um, very churchy language about it, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I, did, oh, I was like, oh, I, may, I want to get up out of my seat a few times. So it's not like I'm exempt you know, for many of that. But I do, I do kind of feel like all the stuff around Trump has these things that have been there and present for a long time uh, in the darkness are now being brought into the light. And I don't think it's new, but I do think it's different in so far that like just how above ground it is. And this, I still feel like we don't have the data is just not there yet to catch up with what really is happening on the ground. When I talk to people in rural and urban communities in America, like people of color, it is shocking how much life has changed on the ground in the last couple of years because outright front door explicit white extremists are coming out of the woodwork, you know, and stuff is happening in communities that's shifting. And I just still feel like that's drastically underreported what it does when people who before were kind of on the fringes of some of these kind of conversations now feel empowered and feel like they've got a mainstream kind of voice in American culture. I think one of the th- I've been listening to you for I don't know how long, Jonathan. Maybe four or five years. I discovered you and uh, your sermons, and it just was like, ah, oh, I really like this guy. And one of the sermons I remember hearing, and then I subsequently heard Greg Boyd and um, and others was was really around the Book of Revelation. <laughs> which, if you're listening to this and you're you're not a Christian, you might be going, "What's he talking about?" Um, but I suppose at that time. I was I had always been fairly open-minded and knew a whole lot, but I actually had never really read much about the Book of Revelation, you know. And um, and I know that you've kind of said this is probably one of the the big revelations you've had in the last twenty years, and I would say the same. Can you kind of just take a few minutes to unpack what is the message of that weird book at the end of <laughs> the Christian canon uh, that has confused so many people? I mean, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes about. Um, but I think if you, what are the basic big themes that you get from that book that have kind of transformed how you see the book, but also what the gospel is? I'm so glad you asked that question and that you ask it the way that you ask it, because A, I do love the book of Revelation. I love to talk about it. People don't ask me questions about it much. But also, without wanting to be overly simplistic, I actually do understand Revelation in much more simple terms now. It doesn't seem nearly as hard to grasp, like... You don't, I'm need, so pa- you don't need all these charts to explain it. Right. You don't have to be the way that <laughs> a mathematician you don't have to be an or, expert. You know. <laughs> the thing that's most damning to me, and intuitively I think I knew this before I knew it, it, about like a lot of those ways of thinking about Revelation is that you could not give somebody a Bible who has, have, has had some kind of background or training, give them the book of Revelation and then read it and come to some of these conclusions. If you're sitting at home reading the book of Revelation, you're not going to read and be like, oh, the seven churches that John writes to in the first few chapters are representative of seven church ages uh, throughout history. And then when Jesus says to John, come up here, that's representative of the church being caught up in the rapture. All these things that just are not in the text. And shockingly, what was really funny about that system, that that kind of dispensational system, as we would say, that which I was given to read it, is that 
the handful of things in the book of Revelation that are concrete and clearly not allegorical, like the seven churches and John himself, are turned into allegories of something else. And then you take the images that are clearly symbolic, dragons and beasts and all that, and you treat take them literally. I mean, it's actually in reverse, you know. So um, I am very passionate about it because what it felt like to me before is that I would read the Gospels, and I'll, I've always loved Jesus, and I deeply love Jesus, but it felt like, you know, <laughs> that's one story. And then Revelation was like this pin the tail on the donkey ending, like, oh, you know, and now for something completely different, you know, like, <laughs> like where did this even come from? Because now the Jesus who's meek and humble and, uh, again, Father, forgive them for the nothing that we're doing, now he comes back at the end, he's like Dirty Harry and like... The cross didn't work the first time, but this time he's coming back with a sword, you know. So that never kind of made sense to me. And I think like there's a lot I could say, but the real simple term has been that turn has been this. Revelation does in fact have a lot of violent militaristic imagery, which is why a lot of people don't like it. And I understand why, you know, there have been people throughout history who didn't think it should be in the canon because, you know, it, people can interpret all kinds of different directions. But I'm convinced at this point that while Revelation uses violent militaristic imagery, that it uses violent imagery in a subversive way. Mm. Because the fundamental book uh, message of the book of Revelation, I think this bears out at, at every turn, is that God conquers the forces of sin, death, hell, the grave through his own self-sacrifice. The self-sacrificial love of the Lamb is what overcomes. And now we overcome through the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, loving not our own lives, even in death. So in other words, we, like the Lamb, are not clinging to our own lives, but we're open-handed with them. We're not willing to kill for an ideology. We're mm -hmm. not willing to kill for what we believe. We are the people who follow the Lamb wherever we go, follow in His way of self-sacrifice. And what you get in Revelation is a, is a series of, not in a linear way, but a series of images that communicate that idea over and over again. God conquers through love. Jesus mm -hmm. rides out in Revelation 19 on a white horse, uh, and his, his robe has been dipped in blood. Well, it's clearly not the blood of his enemies. It's his own blood. And there's mm -hmm. not even a battle scene there. Like, what does that tell us? It's a metaphorical... Because the, the thing I always tell people about Revelation, I feel like I consistently hear folks say will be the most helpful for them, is that Revelation tells the same story that the Gospels are telling and that Paul is telling, that the epistles are telling, from a different perspective. It's from an aerial point of view, but it can't be a different story. It can't be that that's all one story, and now here's this whole new story that goes in a radically different direction. Same story from a different point of view. So what are we saying? We're seeing that uh, we're seeing that the, the, the same story that we get about the cross and the, res the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels and the epistles, now we're getting kind of this eschatological uh, mountaintop kind of view, we're seeing how ultimately that way of love and self-sacrifice will be victorious in the end. That, for me, is the whole message of the book of Revelation. Mm. Yeah, the um, and so the violence is almost uh, showing the power of love, you know, because I think the critique of kind of pacifists or those into nonviolence is that that's, it's passive. It's, oh, it's, it's snowflake, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's weak. And and so, but what Revelation seems to be saying is that the the self sacrificial love of Jesus to die for his enemies rather than to kill his enemies is is like more powerful than a nuclear bomb. Like yes. it's it's a nuclear bomb of love. It's yes. a it's a it's a 
it's a conquest of love, uh, you know, uh, the sword coming from the mouth, but the rider is faithful and true. Um, so maybe the sword is the words that maybe Christ conquers through speaking faithful and true words. Yeah. Could we believe that? And see, that's where you get, uh, do, we, do we actually believe as Christians that faithfulness and truth conquer? Do, right. do we believe that laying down your life for someone, that even your enemy, right. is good, is powerful? If, and, that's, and, and that's where the message of Revelation, I think, becomes quite powerful, just as a Marvel movie, you know, it becomes a superhero. It's, it's kind of exaggerating simple human themes of yes. love, you know. Um, and um, there was something, I remember you doing a sermon, uh, which I loved that little part in Revelation, which you talked about. Can you talk a bit about it where it talks about her gates will never be shut? I know yeah. Brad Jerzak has talked about that. The lake of fire and the gates will never be, the, the gates will never be shut, the lights will always be on, the lights are always on, the gates are never shut. Can you tell us what you know about that? And I'd love to. Like well, I love that section, and and Brad does do a great treatment uh, on this in his book. Her gates will never shut. But that was fairly life changing for me in terms of. I just think Revelation, in particular, but Scripture in general, is a lot smarter than we give it credit for. There's a lot of things. Uh, Revelation is, uh, from a literary perspective, a very sophisticated book, and. The, the the particular ways that John toys with images. So from roughly Revelation 12 and following, you have these forces that are rising up against the Lamb. And he uses the same phrase over and over again, relentlessly, the nations and the kings of the earth. I mean, it's over and over, the nations and the kings of the earth. That's the mantra. That, that, those are the bad guys, the nations and the kings of the earth. They're the ones who are making war against the Lamb. And as, um, as this happens, we get then to Revelation 19, where in judgment, the nations and the kings of the earth are thrown in the lake of fire, which would certainly appear to be the end of the story. That's mm -hmm. all she wrote. Uh, what, I mean, what comes after that? Uh, and yet, in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem comes down, and now there's no distinction between the new heaven and the new earth, this is all one reality, uh, this is kingdom come, this is the time Isaiah prophesies about how you know, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea, when you get to that moment, it specifically says that the gates of the New Jerusalem are never shut, which is fascinating because it's like, A, it's like, why are they not shut? What does that mean? Why would you leave the gates open? If this is final, final judgment and there's no more to this story, why are the gates open? But then the really provocative thing is it describes those who are coming in to the gates of the city uh, and receiving the, the healing you know, for the nations and all that. And specifically it says that the nations and the kings of the earth, same exact phrase, are entering the city and are now paying homage to the Lamb. I mean, there's just, I, I don't try to make any kind of conclusive arguments around any of that because, you know, it is metaphor, it's shadowy, etc. But I just can't think that that language is not purposeful. That, this, that as John has repeatedly described the bad guys, who are condemned to judgment as the nations and kings of the earth, that now we have nations and kings of the earth entering into the gates of the city where the gates are never shut. I mean, um, it, it's just, it just says a lot about the character of this king and of this kingdom. And, and I would say, without trying to hang a bunch of stuff on it, at least would seem to gesture towards the idea that uh, perhaps even beyond death, that there is the possibility of people who are coming to this 
to this kind of reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the nations and the kings of the earth were extinguished in Revelation 19. That you can't you can't make an argument because this is the mm-hmm. one objection I've ever heard is that if I talk about this, people say, "Well, those were the saved nations and kings of the earth." Like, no, no, like that. It's been it's been very clearly established that these are the ones who are rebelling against, even directly warring against the Lamb. So interestingly enough, and I, people always give me the side eye when I say this, is that I actually think. I'm so convinced of this kind of reading of the book of Revelation, I'll even go so far as to say, I think it's one of the most overtly nonviolent books in the Bible, mm-hmm. which people really get puzzled. Mm-hmm. But I just think like that's a powerful mm-hmm. message. So even in the very in the very end, the, you know, God is still blessing mm-hmm. God's enemies mm-hmm. and, and they're they're coming in and receiving healing. What? But it's there if if you know what you're looking for. <laughs> Yeah, so like, I mean, I remember growing up and it was the lake of fire was what we all wanted to avoid. Right. And so you're touching on the fact that Revelation talks about a lake of fire, then after that talks about these same people coming into the city. Yes. Which, which is rep- it's a metaphor for the rule of God, where God is in charge. And, and they're coming. And I liked something that you, you said, I think, recently on a podcast where you go, you can't imagine these people kneeling at the feet of Jesus because they've got a sword to their throat. Right. And someone saying, you know, you better kneel. You know, yes. they are, you know, there's a, whoever is hungry, come buy and eat, you know, um, whoever's thirsty, you know, this voice kind of calling out. And I suppose people don't like us to talk too much about that because they go, oh, you're being universalist. Yeah. And there is that, um, that real thing that actually, it's not a good thing for Christians to want people to suffer, you right. know, and when we're kind of going, no, they all have to die, you know, you're, that's actually not a... And well, and and then you see that play out in people's lives, and mm-hmm. and they they relish almost the killing of people in wars, and yes. suddenly, and that's where why theology matters is why yes. ideas because suddenly Christians are now the, the become the cheerleaders for violence, and that's not the way it's meant to be, um, and and I suppose there is this fear of universalism, um, and we don't know, not, nobody knows enough to know who's in, who's out, That's or whatever. Right. But we do know that God revealed in Jesus seemed to always love those outside, yes. those on the margins, those on the borderlands, those, uh, and maybe he's more interested in, in the trajectory that we're heading in rather yes. than whether we're inside or outside, some borderline that has been defined by some authority somewhere, you know. This I like this trajectory of love business. Mm. I really do need to stick with this whole title, this whole motif. It's so good. Yeah, Jonathan was meant to preach on that last night, and he totally ignored me. I know? ignored the phrase. <laughs> I'd like to think I still talk about the idea. I ignored the phrase. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you, you you made it. You, no, yeah. you said it so well, Johnny. I love that because I feel like it's so important. Because you know, I don't have a chip on my shoulder about anything. But if there's something that maybe perpetually annoys me about how some of this conversation can be received is sometimes I feel like there's a spirit of, okay, like Martin, we like what you're doing fine. But then he's got these quirky eccentric ideas on the peripheral about this. Like you guys, theology does matter. The implications are tremendous. If at the end of the day you feel like war and the violence of humans, I want to say the violence of men, like in the mm. in the gendered way, because actually it really is mm. violence of men. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if you really think that the way of the sword is redemptive, if you really mm. think that God is going to use violence in a redemptive way mm. to bring about mm. his good plan in the end, yeah, that has tremendous implications for how you live in the world right now. Because if, if on some level, even if it's got cost, war is fundamentally good, 
or 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 or, or can be an extension of some sort of greater mm. good and mm. some kind of a cosmic plan, mm. then yeah, why not exterminate the bad guys? Why not? You know, it just what we think about these things has such because what we've seen in America in particular, and I do not believe here that I am being. Um, a conspiracy theorist at all, but like issues very near and dear to your heart. I know you, you know more about this than I do, but I think like around Israel and Palestine stuff, you know, like white evangelicals in, in North America have, have nothing less than funded a war machine. It is a war machine. You've got people who have an active interest, a stake in there being conflict. They want it because, you know, if, if, again, if your worldview is we need um, bloodshed, so that Jesus can come back and get us if this is part of fulfilling the plan, you know, you, you incentivize that. And and so it's not just, again, these aren't just abstract mm. ideas. Mm. There's real weight on how these words mm. change the world. Yeah, they really matter, you know. Um, words matter. There's, a, there's an embassy in Jerusalem because a president in America thinks his, his supporters are going to like it if yeah. they do that. And they're going to like it because they think that somehow he's hastening the end times. And suddenly, the religion of Jesus of Nazareth that is about loving enemies becomes about defining boundaries and yes. killing those on the outside and defending, putting the walls up. I remember a, a Catholic friend of mine talks about how we read the Bible, you know? Um, and we're talking a lot in this episode about the Bible, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, apologies to those listening who who, <laughs> who aren't Christians, but, you know, I hope, you know, you're seeing our dirty laundry in a way. Right. But, um, uh, the I remember this this guy said, you know, the way we read, we bring into the Bible our presuppositions. You know, we read into the Bible who we are, our own experience. He, yes. said, he said, in Northern Ireland, Protestants, and in a sense, I think the psyche would be similar in many ways to, to a kind of white middle-class evangelical uh, in America, you know. But for in Northern Ireland, a Protestant reads the Bible and they go, God is our strong tower. He is our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble, you know. Um, because for many, the slogan of the loyalist Protestant militias in the Troubles was no surrender. You mm-hmm. know that sense of the the siege mentality is is was actually an actual historical fact in in the city of Derry, Londonderry. Um, but it's very prevalent in the psyche, I think, of of Northern Protestants. The sense of where there's people out to get us. Yeah. Um, and he said, but for Catholics, they read the Bible and they go, God is our a vindicator, he will bring us yeah. back out of exile, um, and and so how we <clears throat> we bring our story into the reading of the Bible, um, right. and and I think what is sad sometimes when I look at your American political scene is you've got kind of white evangelicals kind of bringing their fear yeah. um, into their understanding of Scripture, and so God is now the one who will keep them safe from the right. bad guys out there, right. instead of God being the one who wants them to move towards the, the bad guys, or yes. essentially the others. You know. So um, I wonder, uh, where do we go from here? Like, I, I think the concern I have um, is that we don't just... People like yourself and Brian Zahn don't become fluffy, exotic voices on the yeah. <laughs> fringes that have a, a few little people following you. But but actually, the, these ideas, that books like the Book of Revelation, are nonviolent books, um, and that God's desire is for peace. He is the Prince of Peace, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. You know that that this actually becomes 
mainstream, that what those verses that we read at Christmas become the dynamite verses that shape us, that what the church is to become in the next hundred years is shaped by this 2,000-year-old history of Jesus came to bring peace on earth, goodwill to all men. Um, how do we, where do we go from there, Jonathan? Do you think there's hope for us to, to, to see that message becoming mainstreamed, you know? I think there's always hope, but it's so interesting to me that you would even frame it this way because I've thought about this a lot, but I've not talked about it with anybody that I can think of. You know, um, I've just had these moments where I can recognize... I'm self-aware enough, you know, like to see that, to see that people like myself, Brian, others, of course you did just had Jared, also one of my very best friends. Um, you have that sense of like, maybe we're the eccentric, you know, kind of great uncles within our, some of our quarters, like, oh, they're like, well, this is some odd, like whatever. Suddenly, and I want to say suddenly, but like, it, I have this actually intense desire at this point to do whatever it takes to kind of get it into the mainstream. Cause I think to myself a lot these days, like what if Martin Luther King's voice was never heard in the mainstream? And I'm not aggrandizing mm. us with King, mm. but I'm talking about the, that mm. his way of looking yeah. at the world or, you know, I mean, I saw you two four times last week. Like I've never, obviously I've never been somebody who's going to vilify you two for one to make music that is artistically credible, but also be the biggest stadium rock band of all time. Like, I'm just, I, I know we have all kinds of endless ways of sanctifying ambition. I really don't mean it that way, though. Like, I'm just thinking about this a lot. I just, I like these ideas have to be in the mainstream. Because if they're not, once again, you know, there are such consequences. So I am hopeful. I will say the thing that makes me most hopeful is to be more concrete about it, is that um, this form of white nationalism and a lot of these expressions we've talked about today, it really is... Uh, there's a certain demographic of old white American males where that's where they are. And just like, it's just not where the future of the world is going. Like demographically, the world is changing so quickly and power dynamics are shifting in the West now really rapidly. So man, if I wasn't a Christian, um, I still might would say that think about it as natural selection. Think about it as, as evolution. Like I just don't know how much longer those ideas can hold out. Now what makes, what admittedly troubles me is that our technology is such to where it's like, I hope we don't utterly destroy ourselves before uh, people of color and women uh, around the world are able to take their positions of leadership. Like, I hope it's not too late, you know, uh, but because we're endlessly inventive in ways that we can hurt, harm ourselves and our neighbors. But I am hopeful because I just think, man, when you just, to look at sheer like data, how could in 10 or 15 years, how could a, small minority of white wealthy men in America still have that kind of sway over public life. I just don't think it's sustainable. So I am hopeful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one of the books, we've got a, friend, a mutual friend who lives in North Carolina, Gareth Higgins. He's, yes. he's a Northern Irish guy. I went to school with Gareth, lived with him at university. Um, he's an old friend. And I think one of the things, <laughs> the gift of Gareth in the 90s when I was a teenager in early 20s, was he was he would kind of read the books first, and then mm -hmm. he would pass them on to the rest of us. Um, so he was the first one that passed on Divine Conspiracy oh, to me. Oh, um, interesting. He was the first one that introduced me to Henry Nouwen. Wow. Um, first one, and he was the first one that told me about a guy called Walter Wink. 
And as I read Walter Wink's book, um, he had a the, the Powers trilogy. He had a kind of synopsis called The Powers of Be, a smaller, smaller one. Uh, a smaller volume, which was like a kind of a dummy's guide to, you know, his more extensive right, work, right. powers. Um, it really kind of changed my view in a yeah. lot of ways, uh, in a lot of areas, the way I kind of prayed, the way I saw um, things. And I know you, you've you also read a bit of Walter Wink and know, yes. how, where do you, tell tell me a bit about it. Tell me what your, how Walter Wink's influenced, how you kind of view your faith and your practice and well, Wink has been crucial to me in a couple areas. I think his emphasis on the myth of redemptive violence, it's once you see it, it's hard to unsee mm. how that, and I like superheroes and mm. stuff like just the same kind of stuff that you do, but mm. we we do see the way that myth is so embedded in every direction that mm. violence, instead of begetting more violence, can somehow be redemptive. And can mm. like, so, once, so that was permanently shifted something in me. And I think broadly just his language of principalities and powers, you know, I kind of... Um, I don't know if this is an odd turn or not. I feel like um, some people would take Walter Wink's work about principalities and powers. And I know he talks about how powers are, you know, certainly can be redeemed. But when you think about principalities and powers as these mechanisms of injustice in the mm -hmm. world, that, that in their current form are fallen and, mm -hmm. and not redeemed. Um, I think some people, you know, would kind of take that then to say, there's no such thing as kind of evil or embodied evil like a mm -hmm. Satan. Mm -hmm. And of course I come from a background where there's such an emphasis on the devil mm -hmm. as a very literal mm -hmm. kind of reality. Mm -hmm. uh, my, own, my own way of engagement with Wink is I tend to think of that as a bit of like mm -hmm. a both end. Mm -hmm. I think evil is always shadowy and even mm -hmm. in Christian tradition, you know, like Aquinas and others, the notion that evil can only exist as a parasite on the good. I certainly don't think there's a, a guy running around with horns and a pitchfork mm -hmm. and whatever, but I do tend to think that there's a force of evil at work in the world that's greater than the sum of the parts. And um, I've actually had a lot of, it's interesting. I've known a number of people in my life who came to some kind of Christian faith mm. because they first were convinced in the reality of evil. Mm. You know, like mm. when you're a, mm. I think about Scott Peck's mm. work in the early eighties, people, the lie, whereas a psychologist is very thoroughly secular, but it, having these experiences of like, essentially people who were demon possessed, it would ironically would kind of became his window into faith. It was mm. like experiencing profound evil mm. made him convinced there must be some good, but mm. I'm going too far. The point though mm. is to say, I kind of tend to think that like both of those things are true. Like I still in almost charismatic way believe that there are principalities that are spiritual forces. But see now, I do you know when I learned that kind of language, we thought that was talking about Democrats or something, you know, like <laughs> now I think about it in terms of like white supremacy. Now mm. I think about it in terms of systemic mm. injustice. Mm. Like there are real, yeah. Uh, there, there, there is a heaviness, you know, an oppression mm. to these kind mm. of ideas that the reason that people come out kind of mm. brainwashed mm. that get in contact with them. But at the same time, also believing very much that there are just these very embedded systemic structural things that are just, you know, where the systems of the world itself are broken and in need of redemption. You know, Wink has been the catalyst for all of that for mm. me. So very important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, one of the, I remember talking to a young leader who, who had a bit of a crisis of faith because he was like, hold on a second, but Walter Wink doesn't believe in demons. Mm. And, um, and I was kind of like trying to just explain to him that, Maybe, it, like you just said, both and. In some ways, maybe it's that's not really, it doesn't really matter. My kind of reading of him has been, it's not so much important. He's implying there is evil in the world and we need to fight evil, whether yeah. we believe that evil is an embodied 
character um, or whether it's a force that it, either way needs to be defeated. And I've always seen it as, you know, for instance, in Northern Ireland, the, the power of sectarianism, you know, um, needs to be fought. And how do you fight that? Yeah. Well, we fight it in the opposite spirit. You know, That's you right. fight it with not having walls, you know, right. a, 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 a power that says we're going to create walls between people. How you fight it by, by living a life where there's no walls, where there's an open table, you know. And so, you know, a lot of what you talk about open table, I think, becomes spiritual warfare. You know, uh, I think yes, yes. It becomes, well, you're fighting against the, the a spiritual power that is saying there are ins and yes. outs and we hate them and we despise, you know, um, we other people. And so I think it's, it becomes quite a dynamic spiritual force mm-hmm. when we start to kind of use that language. Um, I believe it. And you said something really significant in that though, in that you, the way that you fight it is in the opposite spirit. Cause I can tell you, I keep that in front of me all the time and it humbles me all the time because what I see is that whenever I try to engage some of these forces in my own strength and my own resources, it's so easy that like by looking in the face of that evil for too long, you take on the energy of the thing that you're trying to resist. Mm. And it Mm. really is a problem Mm. that in the name of love, in the name of good and right ideas and ideals, that you can get sucked in by the sort of character, the nature of those kinds Mm. of principalities. So I think all the time about Jesus saying, can Satan cast out Satan? Mm. Like you can't, mm. you don't get rid of, you don't mm. get rid of evil with uh, a different kind of evil. You mm. don't get rid of one kind of, uh, of hatred with, uh, by hating the white supremacist. Mm. And that challenges me endlessly because like, uh, and, I, and I really am saying this mm. not even to be funny, but like in a very mm. confessional way, you know, I think especially like Trump, Trumpism, however you define that right now, it can be so gross and people can be so minimized and dehumanized. Like, I get it that, you know, you read news stories sometimes, and the thing that comes up is in this, well, F Trump, mm, you know? Mm. Like, I get that. Mm. But, man, like, that energy is not the energy of the spirit. Mm. It's not the energy of love. Mm. And I, it, it's actually become all the more profound for me. Like, as a person, who, I do this so, so poorly. But generally speaking is trying to kind of um, come under the discipline of the Book of Common Prayer in my mm. own prayer life. Mm. You know, I do pray for President mm. Trump because mm. I, I have to. It directs me to. <laughs> and whether whatever that changes out there, I know it changes me and it makes my heart tender and soft in mm. ways that I don't always want it to be. And I, I just want to keep that going because in the very moment that you become hard and brittle mm. and angry and you're like, it, it, it not, mm. it's not a sin to be angry, mm. um, but... Anger can like get people out the door. Anger mm. will get you out of the driveway, mm. maybe to fight injustice. Mm. But it can't be the central galvanizing mm. energy, is because it's unsustainable. Mm. You event, you mm. eventually flame out. You get tired mm. of being angry, mm. and it just it's too demanding mm. emotionally. Mm. So like I tell people all the time, I'm never condemning anybody mm. for being angry. Like you should be mad. Mm. There's that. No, be mad. Uh, be as mad as you need to be. But man, like please, like let's at least attempt to bring that anger in the light of God's presence in a way that it can be transfigured mm. into something that's higher mm. and that can be sustained mm. in the long-term work of resistance. Yeah, and probably, yeah, resistance is a key word because it, it, it implies action. And I think uh, I, I wrote a blog once a couple of years ago about out, what uh, I'd heard a guy, I think it was a New York Times article, referred to as outrage porn. Yes, you know, and yes. Of, uh, and kind of what social media has done is it's given us a, a, a mechanism to get really outraged at right. the latest issue and kind of put a social media post up and think that that is action. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, what's 
porn is unfulfilling and outrage right. porn is unful it doesn't actually really lead to much all it and that's the problem i think it's not that anger is sinful we should be angry at injustice Absolutely. but it has to be more than an a kind of an unfulfilled titillating social media outrage it doesn't actually lead anywhere you know can you believe he said that can you believe yeah, he did that yeah, yeah. i can re and I, I can feel what it does to my soul when i read 20 articles like that in a day yeah, yeah. one of the reasons why i actually feel like one of the most crucial things again in long-term resistance now and I, i'm really trying to frame this carefully for people in my own life because i am not policing anybody's tone i'm not the moral police there's no tis 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 i'm not wagging my finger in anybody's face it's more like no you, the work of resistance is so important. This is why we need you well. We need your soul to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So that's where I tell people, like, man, I just don't know how you could sustain any kind of work around any of these issues with justice and peacemaking unless sometimes you strategically unplug. Like, mm -hmm. you just, mm -hmm. you, you have to have days where you're not on the internet. You have to have days where you're not kind of swept up in the sea of those voices. For one, um, I don't know, because I think this is what we see over and over again. Dave Chappelle, of all people, uh, I say that. I mean, Dave Chappelle, like all comedians, have a prophetic side, I think. But in one of these Netflix specials he had recently, he had a really insightful little riff about um, how you can't care about all things equally. And the, like, the idea in social media is that you should be equally upset, outraged, engaged about like all things. And you just can't. It's too much. It brings paralysis. Mm -hmm. So that, that And that's what I feel like happens. It's like people are like, I want to engage all these things and I want to change the world in every area. Mm. Like, well, you're listening to all this all the time. And especially if outrage is kind of at the center of it, man, it, it, the end of the day, like you just like, please, let's just, I just want to go into a coma. I just want to, you know, climb in bed, pull my, the covers over my head and just never, you know, that's what that leads mm. to. And I don't want to be paralyzed. Mm. I, I think we've got to be smart. So for me, it's not like about like, Hey, let's make sure we're not being naughty and mean and our and, and and unloving. It's more like, come on, man, let's be let's be smart because if the stakes really are that high in the moment that we're in, then whether or not we resist in a way that is uh, you know sustainable and healthy for the long haul, like that really that really matters. Let me just take a few seconds to tell you about one way you can support the work that we're doing. Donating via Patreon.com is a way to directly invest in our work. Alongside this podcast, we're seeking to produce a series of documentary films looking at redemptive stories amid the tragedy of civil wars and ethnic and religious conflicts around the world. This kind of work doesn't tend to bring in the big bucks, can I say. And at the moment, there's just a small production team making this dream become a reality. So we would love it if you would consider going to Patreon.com forward slash Guardians of the Flame and signing up to give a regular donation, which will enable us to produce more content. At our Patreon site, you'll see how you can receive bonus content from the films or podcasts in return for regular donations. We don't take this generosity lightly, and we thank you for listening and being part of this project with us. Okay, let's kind of finish, draw to a conclusion by talking about uh, you two. <laughs> the, uh, so, you know, you and I are similar age, we're, uh, a couple of years apart. Um, but, and I think there's something about our age, people our age generally kind of like you too, I think. Even if you're from here, I might say even if you're from here, because I think 
you know, you two get a harder time in their own country. Sure. You know, a prophet is never accepted. Well, sure. And maybe some people would hate that I just called Bono a prophet. Right, you know, right? indeed. But, you know, it's harder to, to be... In, in Ireland, we, we don't like people to do too well, you know? We're, we're not, we don't do well with success, you know? Um, but I'm a big U2 fan. Uh, I haven't been as big a fan of their work in the last 20 years. Uh, the last album I stayed up and got up at 12 o'clock to queue outside the, the CD store was Pop. Mm. Now, that might be because we have Amazon now and right. iTunes and whatever. I, do, I don't think I own physical copies of all of those CDs anymore. But I loved Pop and I loved everything before. And I've liked everything since, but yeah. haven't loved. But So I do share a real uh, affection for you two. I really do love them. I remember during our peace process in 98 over here, um, uh, Pop, I think, came out in 97. Yeah. And Bono came to the Waterfront Hall in Belfast, and he came to an event with uh, uh, it was John Hume, who was a leader of the moderate Catholic Nationalist Party, and David Trimble, who both got Nobel Peace Prizes after this. Uh, David Trimble was the leader of the Protestant Unionist Party, um, the moderate party. And uh, there was a picture of Bono holding both of their hands and lifting it up in the air. And he was kind of coming, along with Bill Clinton, to be the kind of cheerleaders to get them across the finishing line of this peace agreement. Um, and they got it. They got the good, what we call the Good Friday Agreement, you know. And one of their songs at that time was Please, um, Please Get Up Off Your Knees, Please. Um, and they have written so many songs about our troubles and conflict, but then have universalized it, I think, to talk about peace all over the world. Tell me a couple of songs that you love or the ways in which you 2 has been meaningful to you in your life. Hmm. Well, <laughs> that is a really great question to be asked. <laughs> it never happens. <laughs> Someone wants me to go on about you 2 <laughs> on purpose. Like, <laughs> You know, um, different songs for different reasons. In the last 10 years, Beautiful Day off of All That You Can't Leave Behind, though it's such a kind of a rock standard, has been so meaningful to me because, you know, the whole point of the song is Jesus, you know, lose your life to find it. And I feel like that's very much been my experience is uh, especially going through divorce and a lot of loss and pain around all that. Um, this sense of feeling like you're at the very bottom and it's over and finding like new life has become so real to me. And then the, the words of that song have multiple times hit me in a, uh, and I say this in the more charismatic sense of the word, in like a very prophetic way, like mm -hmm. speaking to the language of my spirit powerfully. So like that has been huge, this notion. That after the flood, all the colors came out. You know, this sort of, um, you know, it's, it's when you really are at the end of yourself that, uh, that new possibilities are created, you know. So that's been really powerful for me. I think even though it kind of feels like the ultimate cliche uh, as a U2 fan, uh, where the streets have no name is sort of like kind of the song of my life in terms of like that just for me, like the opening chords to uh, uh, streets where, you know, the edge kind of breaks. And like, that's just, that's what hope sounds like to me. Mm. And I, I think of so and many, all the lights come on. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it happens in my brain too. When I hear it, it's like, it's how many times I feel like in some form of a dark night of the soul or hopelessness, like, that uh, that sound has taken me somewhere else. You know, it just works on me in a very mystical way. And I think like part of what, you know, what's part of what's interesting about Streets is that I love the lyrics, but the lyrics are very abstract. It's like it definitely, I feel like more than anything, it's sort of 
it embodies a feeling, you mm-hmm. know, of, mm-hmm. of, of hope that's very profound for me. So I think like that's something, or, you know, I'll say it like this. Um, cause this is the experience I have consistently with YouTube stuff is that I think it's like, okay. And again, I'm not making one-to-ones here. So please non YouTube fans mm-hmm. like bear with me. <laughs> but I think about how like in the new Testament, the way Paul is so steeped in the language of the Old Testament that like that's just what's accessible for him. So he's always talking about Jesus in the language of the Old Testament, even where the Old Testament, even where it's not some kind of messianic mm. prophecy. Like that's mm. just what he's in, right? Mm. So like in mm. that, I feel like in the same spirit of that, you too is so I'm so saturated in it. Mm. Like there's been so many years of listening to where in the way that I feel like can happen, like with scripture, a phrase or a line, something will come illuminated. Mm where all of a sudden it means something else to me. So I'm mm. at the show night three, I think it was, or maybe it was night four, and they're playing Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, mm. which I think is a great song. I mm. love it. That's but great I, they play that song. Wow. Oh, yeah. They've been yeah. Play, it's a great playlist. They've been okay. playing Wild Horses and Stay. They played Dirty Day. Oh, wow. Great songs. Dirty I've, Day. Wow. That yeah, was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the first time they played it in probably 20 years. I don't, anyway, at any rate, um, there was a particular moment the other night where as Bono is singing from Wild Horses, um, don't turn around, don't turn around again, and don't look back, where I had this moment of like, (laughs) just felt like in the way that I understand these things, the Holy Spirit was just pressing that on me in a particular way. Don't turn around, don't look back. And it was, and I, and I, and I started crying, like, mm. and, and not, not choosing to, and feeling ridiculous about it, even in the moment. But I just think that's how the, that's how their music is going to work for me. It's like, you know, when you, um, I think it'd be the same thing if you'd read a lot of Shakespeare or a lot of a particular poet. Um, the language becomes accessible enough to you to where you're always kind of able to find what you need somewhere in it. My friend, because um, when I got this tattoo the other day, uh, specifically asked me the question of. Uh, you know, what you two means to me. And I, I, I was surprised. I, I was more moved than I wanted to be in responding. <laughs> what I said was what you you two has come to mean for me is that my life has changed so much. And so many things about the journey on the extra has looked different. But what I found consistently is no matter where I am in my story, I can find myself in one of their songs somewhere. Mm. Maybe in the youthful, naive uh, kind of optimism of early U2, maybe somewhere in the in kind of the protest rock and roll, maybe in the deconstruction and the experimentation in the 90s or whatever, but like maybe somewhere in this experience on the other side of innocence, which has been mm. this journey, but always somewhere I can find myself in the story, capital mm. S, and mm-hmm. which is, I think, the power of any kind of art or literature. You know, yeah. you get the resources to... To all of a sudden, when, when you don't know exactly where you are or what you're doing, you can hear a song or read a poem or a novel, and, all, and you're able to say like, oh, I am here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here mm-hmm. I am on the map. Yeah, I'm in that yeah. place. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it almost feels like in some ways that many of us have uh, coming to where Bono was in about 1992 when he was writing Actung Baby. And, you know, I'd take bread and wine if there was a church I could yes. receive. And, you know, because yes. uh, I need it now to take the cup to fill it up drink it slow can't let you go mm-hmm. um yeah i that that song always does it for me they played know? acrobat on this tour Is every that, night and like really? that uh that was one last week too i oh. mean like that was and it was funny different night night one and i remember even having a quickening when you asked me earlier about um the whole thing of taking some of these ideas into the mainstream mm-hmm. 
it was funny because I feel like it was something like that mm-hmm. that I sensed on Monday night mm-hmm. was that they're singing that lyric I've heard a thousand times. Uh, I joined the movement. If there's one I could believe in, uh, yeah, I'd take bread and wine. If there's a church I could receive in, but I need it now. And I, I and I just having this moment where I just had this feeling of people do need a movement. People do need a church they can receive mm. in. They do mm. need a church they can receive mm. in. I've spent two years talking about the open table. Mm. People need a church they can receive in. And like this, this like on a guttural level, this like. That's why it's so important. It's why I can't stop talking about these things. It's why I feel like I do have to contend uh, for for these ideas and and go to the mattresses and Godfather language, you know, kind of for some of them because like, man, like it just, the moment is now Mm. where Mm. that message is needed. And I'm so, I have such a heart for these disillusioned, disoriented sons and daughters of the church who just don't feel like they've got a place to go. Like we, I feel like we got to carve out that space. Um, I think that's like a, a nice way to end, Jonathan. Like um, we people do need a movement. People do need a church they can receive in. And I, I um, thanks for being here. Thanks. For, I feel like you are one of these people that is helping to open the table to people who've maybe in the past felt like they weren't welcome, and uh, and that's what we need. And and I think from a from for someone as a Christian, we need to see. Um, followers of Jesus more looking like the people person we're meant to be following rather yes. than the latest political fad um, or ideology um, or yeah um, so thanks for all that you're doing thanks for your books the honesty which you bring to your work the art artistic creativity the there's real beauty I think in how you write and what you write and but it's also a it's funny, I wouldn't describe you as a prophetic type. You know, Brian Zahn is more that kind of right. edgy kind of, sure. uh, he kind of ruffles people's feathers. Um, but but yet you do it as well, but in a, I think in a, in a, in an important way. And uh, and I think you're one of the important voices in, a, in America at a time when your country's in a bit of trouble, I have to say. Um, and you're one of the important voices that's, uh, part of the resistance, but not a kind of militant resistance, but a resistance that I think is reflective of the Lamb. You know, you're you're trying to love people. You're not trying to hate, hate, fight hate with hate. You're trying to fight hate with love and inclusion. And um, and so thanks for being here. And your voice is important. It's voice important over here in in Ireland too. And last night we had a a pub full of people who afterwards were all saying to me, "Thank you, Johnny." we need this uh, a couple of people in particular said i can't go to church right now you know i just can't i just i i'm just not sure i i'm welcome there i'm not sure and but last night they felt welcome you know and not to say we were we're the best or whatever sure but it, i think it's important these conversations we're having so well thank, thank you man. for i'm so honored by your words johnny that means more to me than you know than you know i would just want to say to that not in the spirit of like you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. But I feel like, you know, you're even just watching um, some footage from the, the film that you're working on and knowing the kind of stuff that you've been doing for a long time here. I just kind of feel like this is the moment now where people who really have been doing the hard work of peacemaking on the ground, where it's been sewn to the fabric of your lives and not with necessarily a lot of fanfare or attention, but like, th- like this is the moment. I think the world is in such a dire place that now um, those kind of prophetic voices of people who have been engaged and who know what they're talking about, who know what it's like 
to resist and who know what it's like to make peace and uh, and to do that like in the name of Jesus. I just feel like that's that's really where the time is. And and you know I love what you know even last night uh, the young lady who shared from Rwanda that was so powerful. I think like in general you know you're you're trying to draw attention to to those voices and put a spotlight there. Uh, you know, the stories that we need to hear. What you're doing in community, like to me, that that's where the answers really are. So thank you for your faithfulness in that. I love that you're doing this podcast. I'm going to tell everybody about it. When everybody listen, this is beautiful. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks so much for your time. And, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll see you again hopefully soon. For sure. All right. God bless.